This is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history with Philip Cunliffe. Hello. Hey. George Hoare. Hi. And myself, Alex Hochuli. Um So uh, today's topic is something that I suggested, much to the chagrin of George and especially Phil, because I suggest we talk about what's beyond neoliberalism. What is capitalism going to do next? And they felt that, particularly Phil, felt, we've done this before. Why are we talking about this again? We're always talking about this. Um, so I want to set up the terms in which uh, I think it's worth discussing this. The point is not to have an academic debate. It's not about just categorizing, labeling, and going, well, is this political economic order still called neoliberalism? Is it called something else? Um, because that really uh, does sound purely of academic interest. We're not just looking at this new species and going, well, you know, does it roar or just purr? Does that make it a pantherinae or a felinae? Um, by the way, that's the main divisions within the Felidae, you know, cat family. So uh, don't say you don't learn anything wow. on Bunga Cast. Um, I also want to take a little bit of inspiration from a recent guest, Dylan Riley, who um, made, or rather um, put in, in, in neat terms, uh, a very important point, which is that a lot of meth- methodological problems um, in, in academia, in social sciences and so on, are actually just obfuscate, obfuscated political problems that um, what questions that should be resolved politically and traditionally were resolved or attempted to be resolved politically um, by advancing a theory within the context of an organization, a political party, and then tested out through action, um, no longer is the case because political parties have been hollowed out and depoliticized. And so uh, with that in mind, I thought we should try to take this question of what is what would be beyond neoliberalism and, and treat it in a very uh, serious political way. Um, looking at what the action that would ensue from uh, a certain understanding, a certain theoretical understanding. If you're saying that what is after neoliberalism is, for example, more authoritarian, um, how does that mean that one should respond? What should one's demands be? How should one organize, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, this is not just uh, an academic debate, but it should be something that is uh, intimately political and something that we do need to have an answer for. Now, just to set up um, kind of where we are in the world, um, we have uh, written in the end of the end of history and argued on this podcast and elsewhere um, that we are moving towards some sort of new disposition uh, and certainly that uh, that neoliberalism has lost its political and intellectual authority, even if so many um, aspects of the way our societies are organized still look um, pretty much neoliberal. Um I think this new disposition that is emerging uh, is certainly not a political economic arrangement driven by the working class. It's probably not even a class compromise of any sort. It's maybe not even really influenced by the masses. I think at best what we can say is that it reflects uh, certain challenges by populists, both left and especially from the right, over the past uh, decade. And and the change is not a product of uh, the uh, political action of working class organizations. Uh, The populists often... Um, kind of cross-class assemblages of um, provincial notables, small business owners, as well as counter-elites. And in many ways, a lot of the reaction against neoliberalism and the shuffling towards something different might be uh, driven by elites' fears of these counter-elites and these movements which challenge their authority, um, but not necessarily ones which do so in the name of uh, the working class from working class interests. Of course, that that is something that we might want to question. Now, at worst, it's really just capital and its agents fumbling away past a crisis-ridden system to a new regime of accumulation, effectively how you make money, and looking for new means of legitimation. Basically, how do you make sure people don't revolt? Um, So given that any potential post-neoliberalism as things stands... is not something that is in the popular interest or is necessarily more democratic because there's no reason it necessarily should be, Um, we have to ask how to properly respond to that. One final point, I think that post-neoliberalism might provide a better playing field, um, to put it that way, but it's certainly not our field. Uh, But knowing the terrain would be essential to oppose what's coming rather than seeking to fight the last war, as the left so often has seemed to have done. 
Um, so we've uh, picked up sources from from um, a range of uh, places to kind of inform our discussion here, um, and we'll refer to them uh, as we uh, go through and maybe include some of them in the show notes. So I think, firstly, um, there seems to be kind of a, a centrist move beyond neoliberalism and a right-wing one, and we'll discuss these in turn. So firstly, the, the kind of centrist one is being called productivism. Um, or alternately, um, a kind of sub- supply-side progressivism, um, just for um, the kind of definitional issue here. But a lot of kind of neoliberal policies, deregulation, lower taxes, free trade, and so on, were discussed as supply-side economics. <laughs> this supply-side progressivism that's emerging, and one could see the Biden administration as um, serving as an example of many of these sorts of policies, uh, is something pretty different. So firstly, what is this productivism that's emerging from effectively the political center in uh, many Western capitals? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, um, it's it's not a term that's particularly sort of familiar to, to my ears as a, as a British listener. That sounds like listener of the podcast, obviously listener of the podcast, but just like ears as a listener. But it's this idea that you kind of have less faith in the markets, you have like, kind of a move away from like large corporations solving everything and you kind of you kind of start to talk less about the global and more about the local and the different parts of the country and why some places have been left behind or or however you want to to frame it and move towards production and investment i mean it's it's quite a um i don't think that productivism is is quite right though because it's not a at least in my understanding, it's not really a, a kind of building industries approach. It's much more technocratic than that. It's kind of the central planners, such as they are in across the US or the UK, just basically thinking what what are the areas of the country what, that have what really central shit? planners? Well, well the, the central planners, as in the special advisors <laughs> of um, different political parties, like being like, oh yeah, this is a crap place to live. We're gonna. We're going to see what we can do, do some good PR, try and get people to not think these places are so shit anymore. This is, this is my like interpretation of, um, of productivism that it's not really, you know, it's not really in the fa- in like the interest of labor. It's just a way to kind of gloss, have a technocratic gloss on some of the problems of post-industrialism and post-industrial societies, which are very regionally focused. I mean, I'd say it's a debate, you know, kind of it's a discourse more than anything meaningful. That might change with the kind of battery of um, Biden legislation, which is coming, you know, coming through or just kind of recently been passed, the Inflation Reduction Act and what have you, um, IRA, uh, not Irish Republican Army. That confused me a bit when I saw some of the headlines about yeah, it was the, very the jarring. EU, the competition between we, the EU. We knew and the he liked IRA. to play up his Irish roots, but um, you know that's going too far. <laughs> but <laughs> anyway, um, so I mean, you know that you know, so it's interesting, I guess, you know that that's being hailed um, across the business press. You know, even by the Economist, famously skeptical about um, FDR's kind of New Deal and um, skeptical about the Biden administration's legislation as well, but still kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of, I guess, a bit uh, purse-lipped perhaps, but nonetheless impressed just by the sheer scale. And also as good capitalists, you know, there's going to be lots of opportunities for pork and boondoggling. Um, And I think, I mean, you know, so there is kind of, there's a debate, there's something more happening in the US. And because we get so many of our kind of, um, pointers in terms of policy and discussion from the US. I'm sure that's going to come through here. And, you know, the incapacity of the EU to mount something which is a similar kind of response on a similar kind of scale inevitably means, combined with the effects of the Ukraine war, that you're going to have, um, I think, you know, creeping, continuing creeping deindustrialization in the EU. And so that, again, will be kind of discussed in these terms. So when you're talking about productivism, what you're really talking about is a new era of um, kind of state-led market guidance, I suppose, in the US, Mm. and a focus on reshoring supply chains, competition with China, 
a reshaping of globalization. Um, but that's not going to be the same if anything kind of like, you know, similar to it in the in the EU, simply by virtue of the energy dependence, um, the effects of the war in, in the Ukraine, and at the same time, the fact that the US is basically gouging European industry with its, um, you know, with this huge kind of infusion of cash for green industry, which the EU can't match. Yeah, and I mean, it's worth also discussing under what um, pressure um, this shift has happened, even if it's um, more expressed in well, geopolitical, uh, larger right? spending. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's right. But, you know, I, I guess I, to rephrase the question, what domestic forces have, have pushed this, um, both at, at kind there of an is, elite level, who's leading it, and also if they've been pushed in any way? There is a working class aspect to it insofar as it's, you know, it's clearly kind of... Um, you know, I mean, it's clearly trying to at least neutralize, if not absorb, kind of the Rust Belt revolt that put Trump into power, right? So kind of Midwest and Northeast um, Electoral College, the swing votes that kind of put Trump into power, it's clearly meant to address those concerns, you know, and um, address the famous lines, you know, that Trump kind of harked on about, about the kind of um, the depredations of free trade on the American working class and American industry. So, it's a recognition of the Trumpian revolt to that degree, you know, and it was propelled by working class discontent. So I think that's significant. It's not, you know, I mean, it's not to overreg it. It's not like the direct, the result of kind of direct working class pressure through union organization and, um, you know, kind of tough labor bosses laying down the line in the White House. But there is a connection to working class politics. Yeah, I would I would say that's right. The connection to working class politics is one step removed because it's a I would see this as a technocratic response to populism. So it's recognizing that there is potentially like a movement of more working class independence from the traditional like parties of the left across Europe or in, in the US. And that has to be countered. And the technocrats are thinking, yeah, OK, the one way we could do this is by productivism that sort of sounds vaguely labory but doesn't kind of concede too much and you know in the british case let's let's kind of build some roads somewhere i mean it's it's not a it's not giving political power to the to the people who've indirectly pushed for it but it's a certainly a, a kind of mediated recognition of the, the specter of kind of working class political independence it could be the like the most charitable like uh, interpretation you might be able to give of it perhaps well, and I think the tell is here, seen in the fact that, well, and I mean, in the, in the US, at least the tell, I think, is the fact that a lot of this shift towards, you know, productivism is um, in the form of subsidies to businesses. So it's not even directly a jobs program um, or supporting wages, let alone kind of um, in some ways supporting working class independence um, to the extent that that could be done from from a top down way anyway. But pork um, and boondoggling. Well, that, you know, and it's also, you know, the kind of regional dimension there is important because it's, um, you know, s small, medium businesses, which might be su um, suppliers, which were um, blown out by globalization. And if they're able to then survive, they're, um, you know, important job creators in areas which are run down and supporting them will supposedly, hopefully have positive side effects for um, the working class. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's really the tell that it's um the effects on the the working class, even just in terms of jobs and wages, is a is a secondary effect, not the kind of primary thing that's being directly supported. Which also shows, I guess, who's holding the, you know, who's who's the one kind of leading that. It's those kind of business owners who are pushing forward, and those business owners who voted for Trump, um, perhaps more than it is any kind of um, you know working class revolt. Um, I mean, I'd say, you know, I'd add to this, though, right? So it's also in as much as it's a discourse, you know, who loves the discourse, right? You know what I'm going to say now, right? Um, no. Do you love the, love the discourse? I don't just love the discourse, but there is a kind of uh, a kind of a group that thrives on discourse. And it has a certain acronym, which I've been banned from saying on the podcast. But nonetheless, it is true. Right. And these people. These uh, people that we're not allowed to name, you know, they not only thrive on it, but also they see jobs, right? They see a whole fucking bonanza of regulatory, um, bureaucratic, nice, white collar, um, administrative jobs where they're going to be kind of, uh, you know, they're lining them, you know, they see kind of fantastic opportunities, 
to police, to censor, to run departments, to, um, you know, to kind of uh, write lots of kind of nice big policy documents and slide decks. And so when they see all of this, they see tremendous opportunities, you know, and I think that's exactly what some of them are thinking. Look, you may not be interested in the discourse, but the discourse is interested in you. I mean, I think I'm not quite sure I, I buy this. I mean, I'm I'm always prepared to listen to an anti um, discourse surfer or virtue order um, line, but I, it doesn't seem to me to be the the central constituency of this of this project. I might be I might be getting something wrong, or I might be. Kind of no, I didn't say it's a central constituency, but that they are, you know, kind of they're looking at it and they're looking for opportunities. So that's the way they're kind of thinking of it, right? They're looking for white collar opportunities to benefit. And I think that... Um, Do you mean like directly administering these projects in the federal government or, you know, in associated like think tanks and so on? Because I mean, that really is a very in small all sorts of Well, no, but in all sorts of ways, right? So kind of, um, you know, they, look, there's plenty of opportunities for white, you know, like the New Deal was a huge, you know, there were huge opportunities there for kind of administrative posts, right? In the administ- new administrative state. And that's going to be the same here. Right. Well, so that so that so the, I, that I, that's where I'm not convinced because what is precisely um, I, I you know productivism up till now and I think one of the notable things is that it hasn't really set up new institutions of any sort means that it the whole administrative apparatus of the New Deal isn't or anything comparable to that isn't being set up despite the fact that the uh, well, pure amounts do, being right? spent are larger up. than uh, are larger than anything uh, since the New Deal. No, but they you know those things might come. Yeah. It's a, no, it's, a, it's an interesting point. I didn't really think about that, actually. The Like, what is the sort of new administrative state that would be required to enact, like, to, to get this to work? And I guess there is a whole um, <clears throat> sort of set of things in between, you know, production and consumption. I think there is, you know, what, what, what's the kind of political stakes of this? Like, is this a, like, a true recognition of the consequences of deindustrialization and the need to move back to productivism or production so i don't know i'm using extra syllables and words that they don't need um or is it just like and my this would be sort of more my take it's just a surface level pr kind of technocratic response which doesn't which is never going to succeed even on its own terms because it is not going to be really looking to 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 kind of properly no, i don't think industry it's not UBI, right? So it's not just dropping money like the, um, you know, like the kind of UBI or quasi UBI kind of policies during the pandemic and the lockdown. So it seems to me like it is going to get things built. It probably will kind of generate new jobs and it will probably, you know, I think it's safe to say it's going to reshape the structure of the, um, you know, the global economy in so much as it's a kind of intertwined structure between China and America. So I think it is genuine, right? I mean, to that mm-hmm. degree, it's a real thing. And the American economy is on a scale that it can kind of do these things in a way that is more, you know, kind of is very is difficult in, in a different context. But uh, I mean, I think it's worth thinking through the politics of it as well, right? So the, um, so I mean, there was some, some reading, um, on the uh, law and political economy blog, which is associated with Yale University, and they had um, they had some takes on this, which I thought were worth discussing, or at least kind of parlaying into the discussion, because they make the case there that you have the um, that it's you know the productivism there that the productivism and the shift away from neoliberalism is being claimed by the right, and in particular by the um, you know by the kind of the right that's associated with. Um, the good law um, constitutionalism of a kind of a new insurgent Catholic intelligentsia, right wing intelligentsia in the, um, in the, uh, in the U S and it's interesting on many levels. Did you guys get a chance to read this? Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was very interesting. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with all their conclusions or certainly not with their, the, the politics, but I think we can leave that to one side and, and just take the analysis as it is. Um, and I thought it was um, useful in trying to um, understand that I think unlike the sort of center left block around Biden and, you know, it's notable that 
um, just refer back to the kind of productivism side of things, that the Biden um, bloc has seen a rapprochement between the kind of Sanders wing of the Democratic Party and and the kind of centrist Biden wing um, with lots of kind of personnel, kind of more Bernie aligned personnel brought into the administration. Um, and kind of old school neoliberals like uh, Lauren Sanders, uh, Lauren Sanders, Lauren Summers um, kept out. So I think that's I think that's kind of notable that that kind of forms one kind of block. And then on the other side, you have this, um, yeah, kind of more, you know, certainly a conservative block, which seems to, according to this blog anyway, be a little bit more serious about um, building institutions and directly supporting, uh, how to put this? I don't know, um, directly supporting and trying to re um, reform kind of the, bases of American life. And they specifically want to do this in terms of like supporting families. And so a lot of it is inspired seemingly um, by Viktor Orban in, in Hungary and kind of providing support for people to have families. Now that's the way it's read by the Yale kind of yeah. critical lawyers. So, I mean, I think I'm not sure I would, you know, I'm not sure I would accept that at face value. I have to say, I mean, so, you know, there is a good point which is made and you'll find, so listener, you'll find these in the show notes. Um, but there is like a good point which is made in one of the, dis, in one of the, um, in one of the pieces that, you know, what we might end up with is not like some great new era of um, a return to industrial society, but some kind of mutant form of neoliberalism, which is shaped by this um, Catholic kind of common... Uh, common good constitutional vision associated with these uh, kind of this new Catholic legal academics and so on. And I'm not sure. I mean, I think the question of whether we get a mutant neoliberalism is an important one, equally important, you know, and perhaps even more important, I think, than, you know, kind of a Catholic cabal is the what role the left will play in creating a mutant form of neoliberalism. And I have to say, reading some of this stuff about the suspicions of kind of compact magazine, Sora Bamari, um, Adrian Remula and Patrick Deneen and all these kind of people, they're, um, you know, they're like um, it kind of uh, some of it verges on classic waspy um, paranoia about kind of Catholic infiltration of the US, you know, um, and the idea that industrial, you know, some of the I mean, one of the blogs kind of um, on this uh, on this uh, on this Yale, one of these Yale blogs almost verges on suggesting industrial policy itself is some kind of popish plot, you know? So, no, absolutely. It is very kind of very crankish um, in trying to understand what's going on. And it's all kind of trying to tar by association with the Orban regime in Hungary. So I'm not, um, you know, kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't leave me, um, it doesn't leave kind of fill me with confidence in their attempt to kind of tackle the the new Catholic right. But I would say, um, you know, it does underscore just how little the left has to offer. Right. And that's why they feel under pressure mm. and not because of the, you know, because they're appealing because they're basing their stuff on Hungary. It's because they're appealing to a growing Hispanic kind of constituency in the U S um, that surprisingly, you know, kind of has attachment to things like family and might go to church and, you know, kind of celebrate Christian holidays and whatnot, and that that is a crucial component of any future kind of electoral majority. And that's what the common law, or well, the com, um, that's what the new kind of Catholic right is basing its hopes on, not on kind well, of Orbanism. I, I mean, I would turn that around and actually say that, you know, both sides, but, you know, the left and um, the sort of new pro-worker conservatives or whatever they might be, um, how much they expose the weakness of each other, in fact. Um, the, the idea that um, these, uh, you know, conservatives, in some cases reactionaries, could, you know, gain a, gain a hearing shows the extent to which the left has abandoned the working class and kind of just basic working class interests Absolutely, that they're able yeah. to, to walk into it. And and so and so your points, of course, as well, um, Stan, Phil, in terms of uh, them pointing out the, you know, the weaknesses of the left and, and, and the weakness of, of the right. And at the same yeah, time, where effectively, are the, weaknesses? Oh, the, the weakness. Where huh? are the weaknesses? Where are the weaknesses that they identify? All they have to well, offer is who, more. Who's they? Sorry, scolding. who's they? Who's they? So you're saying there's like a symmetry, there's a kind of a symmetry between the new kind of Catholic right. Well, and I, I'm saying the... I'm saying that the I'm saying that the reactionaries, because they I mean they and the conservatives, because they're working through the Republican Party, um, 
their cell effectively is a anti-majoritarian one because it relies on the courts and and the um, you know the electoral college and all the the ways that the Republicans have been able to win executive. Yeah, office. but they're not committed and to so, that. I don't think they're banking on those institutions, right? I mean, obviously, you know, surprise. I mean, what a surprise that uh, Catholics support cracking down on abortion. So obviously, they're in favor of the Supreme Court kind of um, decision on Roe v. Wade, right? Um, and they're disheartened by the fact that it's being chiseled away at the state level, which was always, in fact, you know, the right place for. Um, for having that kind of legislation put in put in anyway right but anyway i mean the point this is the point i think is that i don't see that you know they're on the left is under pressure because they can see that this new kind of political economy paradigm is much more congenial to a right um that is kind of oriented towards popular needs in a way that the left simply isn't all the left sees is the opportunity for a new kind of layer of jobs that they can, you know, lawyer and regulatory and technocratic jobs. A hug for the right yeah, and a I knife th- for the left. That's that's. I still... think. Um, I know. I think Alex is is right here. If I understand him correctly, that this, like the common good constitutionalism, like the clue is in the in the title there to to Sernison or the third, the third word constitutionalism. Like the it, this is not a mass project. This is a, precisely one as Alex said. That governs through the traditional or recent methods of the Republican Party, which are anti-majoritarian. It doesn't need to have a mass mobilization aspect. I think yeah, the though, clue is I in do... the name, the common good. They're appealing to a sense of public good, not yeah. just like a rainbow coalition of you know paying off various identity group constituencies. Yeah, but there is a there is a mirror image like problem that common good means nobody good like if it applies to everybody then there's a problem with that i mean what it doesn't identify us it doesn't identify a specific constituency you can common good so it's so therefore what is no but what is like in the fact that they have so you could you know i mean you can critique the idea of the common good that they have right but the idea that there is a greater kind of you need to be able to think in universalistic terms and in terms of political collectivity right? In terms of public good, that isn't just kind of piddling little projects, kind of NGO projects for inner city kind of, um, you know, inner city charity projects, which is basically the height. But I don't think I don't think you can reduce the Biden administration's plans, for example, to that even. Um, so They're I not, that's, but the that's left... rather... I mean, so what I would say about this common good constitutionalism or, or what I took one of Phil's points to be, which I think is on the mark, is that it is the response to it is is not proportionate so in the article that you that um you mentioned earlier phil this idea that um this common good these common good constitutionalists want to put into place a reactionary welfare state or a new theocracy that doesn't seem to me to be correct obviously they are catholics yeah. or i mean it's Christians unhinged widely but it's if you focus on that aspect you're missing the, the the point about what are the political means through which they're trying to put this forward and it reminds me to a to a certain extent of the response to of the left on in the UK to blue labor you know that's the politics of common good and it's like what you want to like go back to the to the 50s and you want to kind of like put into place all these cultural and and various other things it's like well actually no this I don't think should be the line of critique of of blue labor at all I think there are you know many other things that you can <laughs> that you can say are not um you know not to to my personal taste of this of that particular sort of politics but the it's just obviously misrepresenting your enemy and that's always well not always but that's often a sign of of weakness so if that's what you were saying Phil that the the left is um <clears throat> kind of saying these are kind of the new theo- theocrats we're going to have like an Iranian revolution in the US <laughs> and these people are going to be leading it then that gets that is a, well, that's a what they, hysterical response. So let me, okay, let me circle back to my main point, right? They're not, you know, it's not theocracy. I mean, that's just insane. Obviously, it is insane, it's yeah. not theocracy. What they're banking on is a new kind of working class majority, a large proportion of which, if not the largest proportion of which will be, you know, Hispanic or Hispanic adjacent or whatever the latest kind of, you know, um, demographic shade is in you know kind of the weird language of u.s census polling right and so they're you know they're banking on on a large kind of on a large proportion of the public they're banking on majoritarian politics 
Um, well, but, okay, but so they support the Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade because surprise, surprise, they're Catholics, right? But, no, but, it's, saying, but I, th- I think you're you're putting too much in, uh, focus on a on a specific intellectual group, um, which has their arguments, okay, but I, obviously aren't yeah, ruling. I'm, so I'm I think going, so I think it's so I think it's worth turning back to actually who the leading political forces are, at least politicians, um, behind a supposed you know post neoliberal conservatism, and there we can look at people like Marco Rubio. Um, the, I guess the jury is out on how post-neoliberal uh, DeSantis is. But even Romney yeah, is Vance. discussed in this group. And I, and I think it's notable that Romney's discussed um, because well, he, he's of course, trying to comes from finance. Right? Hey, let, me, let me finish my point. Um, he comes from finance, obviously. Bain Group um, has always described himself as socially liberal, fiscally conservative. He's been stood against various forms of subsidies or bailouts um, and has um, tried to in always in, in limit state spending, try to cut social spending whenever possible and so on. And the fact that he's now um, kind of one of the leading figures of this new kind of political grouping, I think shows the extent to which um, the kind of field of post-neoliberalism uh, is a bit of a free-for-all. And, but no one is pr- proposing... Um, particularly far-reaching changes um, and certainly yeah. not the building of new institutions which would which which a, a kind of break with neoliberalism would uh, would require so uh, that's not my reading of yeah, the Bain I group at all true. I mean so the Bain group in the I think this is in the third Christopher Nolan Batman films was not I don't think socially liberal and fiscally conservative I think it was much more um, radical and had a kind of these uh, revolutionary, court type um <clears throat> type approach so i think you know it's the first that i've heard that that romney was is allied to to that kind of gothamite politics um no he was because then you remember there were so there was a great meme um back when trump won where he went to um romney went to kiss the ring right and he went for dinner with trump and they took a photo and somebody uh, mocked it up for twitter and said i'm gonna from now on you're gonna be called reek underneath a uh, game of thrones reference for um for listeners who are fans so okay, anyway that, that was a little nerd interval um back to the regularly scheduled programming oh sorry just because we know about culture it makes us nerds <laughs> uh, no don't think so anyway um i think it's pro- probably also worth exploring um what would require a more serious break with neoliberalism because it's obvious that there as a kind of shuffling away from um, the standard neoliberal recipe um, to the extent, and this is a point we've made before, um, a visitor from 1985 would not uh, particularly recognize what is going on now as the neoliberalism they had become accustomed to, certainly a visitor from 1995. Um, And many of the cultural arrangements of neoliberalism, I think, will persist. And I think this is um, important to underline just so that we focus on the political economy and not some of the cultural aspects. So I just wanted to to, to cite some things from um, a recent book, uh, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order um, by Gary Gersel, which in in the conclusion, um, I think makes some really salient points, that the survival of cultural elements of neoliberalism also offer no guarantee that the neoliberal order itself is alive and well. So for example, you might have the persistence of uh, a cultivation of the entrepreneurs of the self, um, that the um, focus on analytics and measurement across society up and down um, will persist, uh, endless calculations to determine one's popularity on social media, for example, all these things which are discussed as quintessentially um, neoliberal cultural ever facets of neoliberal culture might actually remain. Um, and that at the moment, for all that there might be kind of political moves beyond neoliberalism, uh, the measurement imperative that remains has become as much a mechanism for tyrannizing the self as for realizing the full possibilities of one's personhood. No political movement to release individuals from this tyranny of self-scrutiny has yet gained traction. Uh, The mere survival of elements of an order, therefore, should not be mistaken for the order itself surviving. Social security is still popular, is still a popular welfare policy in the United States nearly 90 years after the New Deal brought it into existence. Um, So all all that just underline, in case um, maybe listeners were thinking of these as as an objections, that we might be moving to some you know, post-neoliberal order, um, while so many of the things that we identify as neoliberal in cultural terms actually persist and persist for, for quite a long time. 
Yeah, it's interesting, right? I was <clears throat> watching uh, Trigger Point, which is um, a cop show done by the writer of uh, Line of Duty, which is a listeners may or may not recall. We have discussed this previously on this podcast. And it just made me think that like the, the, the whole dynamic in this um, in this show as in many police shows is like that you do things by the, the numbers and you've got to get arrests up and you've got to kind of do this or is it about real policing? So it's like there's a, it's a very, very well established part of everybody's life now that we have these um, very bureaucratized, very kind of rationalized systems of measurement and quantification, which are counter to the very meaning of the activities which are being measured and and quantified and that's something which doesn't seem like it's going away um really anytime soon it's so in, ingrained and embedded in the way that we <laughs> relate to each other in the state and the way that we sort of you know do our jobs and live our lives that it's it seems extremely um you could have a different political economy order but that kind of cultural quantification uh aspect is like pretty ingrained i would say mm -hmm. yeah so one thing which is worth i think bringing in also there's a piece by michael lint um kind of perhaps the smartest thinker of the American um, or one of the smartest thinkers on the American right. I think if he would, uh, I think, you know, how he would classify himself. But um, anyway, um, he's um, he's written a piece for uh, Compact most recently about not kind of putting hopes in, in Caesarism because there's this growing tendency to, um, on the right, he's talking to where they hope, you know, they would, they long for a kind of um, a populist, charismatic figurehead to um, smash through all the kind of impediments that stand in the way of getting anything done in America. And he makes the point, you know, like, I mean, in many ways, you have some of that with Biden, um, the kind of the charismatic insofar as Biden's trying to do an FDR, you have that similar kind of, um, that the left already is bound up with that insofar as, you know, they've, um, they've constantly harked back to constantly aspire to repeat the FDR interlude. Um, anyway, but well, he makes the point that he's so he's against Caesarism, um, but he makes the point, right, that there will be no change and you can kind of do all of these initiatives at the top and you can launch new policies and, um, you know, kind of spend money on and subsidies on industries and bring back chip production and what have you. But no real change is going to happen in the kind of um, distribution of power and the institutional kind of fabric and structure of Amer of the American state and society until you have the return of mass membership organizations mm -hmm. and you have the restoration of kind of social collectivity. And primarily in that, he means labor unions. And he says this is the work of a, a generation or two, you know, before you're kind of back in that. So anyway, it's worth reading. You'll see it in the show notes um, for listeners. Um, but it's I think, you know, there's that. I guess all of these all of these things have to be all of these uh, debates and points that we're talking about. They have to be refracted through the fact that you don't have any kind of social weight or density. Um, so it's refracted through highly atomized um, and highly kind of unequal societies that don't have any um, real institutional or political coherence, at least not in the way that they have had for the last hundred or so years before that. I think that's a very, that's well put, Phil. Um, and I think part of what's hamstrung um, this debate around kind of neoliberalism, whether it's going away, how it's changing, whether it persists and so on, is that it's it, it takes place within a, an exclusively kind of post-war Western container, um, which is to say people assume that the only alternation you can have is something that looks like the New Deal or um, social democratic welfare states or uh, the neoliberalism of, you know, 1980 to 2010, for example, um, not recognizing precisely this fact that we're on kind of radically different historical terrain, um, terrain which is different from the preceding, you know, 150 years because of that lack of social density. So we're having to kind of imagine and trace out a transformation within 
kind of the way that capitalism organizes itself um, at a point in which you just those organizations which used to play an important part in transmitting these changes and which were themselves transformed by these changes are no longer there. And I think that is part of the reason why there's such a, um, a, a kind of not a stasis, but the way that this is somehow so sort of trapped, uh, you know, as you indicate in your in your comments, Phil, that you might have more spending, um, for example, um, and you might break all sorts of uh, rules that neoliberalism previously implemented without any kind of substantial social change. Now, one thing just about the kind of Caesarism or Bonapartism um, that is there, I, I think that, you know, under... The, uh, fairly radically different social conditions, but ones which are hardly unimaginable, which is a, a kind of bigger breakdown in social order under the impact of some serious crisis, that um, precisely what would break us free from um, kind of neoliberalism would be precisely some form of Caesarism, which would um, have the kind of authoritarian force and drive to be able to break with existing institutions, even if they're you know democratic ones or um let's say, liberal counter-majoritarian ones and implement a kind of new settlement which would um, integrate the working class at, at a, you know, at a, maybe perhaps at a higher level of um, wages and so on while still being uh, very authoritarian and that and we, we should break through the existing culture wars and so on. Now, I, that's not something I'm proposing. It's not something that I'm dreaming of, but it seems to be the only kind of um, imaginable situation as things stand, um, which would... Um, yeah, which which could emerge and it, it emerge in the context of you know uh, as, as a kind of third option between a squabbling you know and potentially even violently fighting kind of culture war between left and right. Yeah, I mean, so just just to kind of get this straight, maybe. So my, I guess, kind of reading these these articles, one thing that I was that I kind of kept coming back to is like, what is the agency that is supposed to have taken us from a neoliberal to a post neoliberal situation i mean i should say i am still not convinced that we are in a post neoliberal period i mean if i had to put if i had to kind of draw a line in the sand and put myself on one side of it i would be in the we're still in neoliberalism part so, of so, that. What's, so we're it's still, we're still at the you... end of history then is that it I mean, I mean, so, so specifically, sorry, this is a genuine question to, to George. Like, what um, what aspects specifically do you point to, which which um, say that we're it, that this is still neoliberalism? So, as I was literally just about to say, the sorry. point it would be that in order to move from neoliberalism, so from Keynesianism to neoliberalism, you had a like specific set of actors and a political project, and it you know it realized a change in governing. Uh, organizations and institutions and methods and all this sort of thing and a, and, a, and a you know a more or less thorough re kind of forming of society at the same time but you didn't like you haven't had this we're still in this kind of end of end of history period where there is no we haven't had this caesaristic um movement to a new period we haven't it's it doesn't seem to me very easy to identify who got us there if we are actually in a post neoliberal situation so i'm much more sympathetic to the kind of mutant neoliberalism neo-neoliberalism just plain old neoliberalism neoliberalism 2.0 any you can kind of have whatever like terminology you you want but it seems to me like we haven't that caesarism idea we haven't had that caesar or that bonaparte we're still in essentially the same situation we were um previously well i mean i guess to, to put the question maybe then more pointedly i mean if all the rules of neoliberalism are broken, globalization, free trade, even if imagine uh, central bank independence were withdrawn, and it was a purely like a lead process as a kind of response to the evident crises, would that not be enough to move us beyond neoliberalism, even if there's no age, new, no new agent, certainly no new popular agent, um, that elites can un undertake regime change themselves? No, I don't think so. I think the the process of state transformation that accompanied neoliberalism is we're still in those we still have those same member states across Europe and across the whole world. Member states should not be thought to be just a member state of the EU. So I I don't I I think we are we're in that same situation of encasement of 
uh, economic decisions from from um, democratic control. But that, and yeah, but, there's but, a bit, but, sorry, a bit but, different branding, but it's still the same. Still the same. But why does why why do we need to move beyond? Why uh, does a move beyond neoliberalism need to imply democratic control at all? There, you know, there's many other regimes. Yeah, you're setting history. the bar very. You're setting the bar right, very let, let high. Just, let me just finish the point. I mean, if you think of like 19th cent, late 19th century, early 20th century oligarchic republics, for example, um, the the economy is completely was insulated from political de- decisions. You know, there wasn't kind of mass democracy, um, and those weren't neoliberal regimes. It was a it was a completely different type of of economic order. So I, I think, yeah, you're setting the bar um, too high. It's like you're saying, well, only socialism can. Um, yeah, neoliberalism, neoliberalism will only end with the revolution. That doesn't seem to me to work. That wasn't what I was saying. I started off by saying we, you could have a Caesaristic solution. Uh, I'm not going to apologize for setting the bar high and for having high standards. There's nothing um, wrong with that. <sighs> no, no, but I think, but, but to bring us back to where we started, I think there's a very, it's an important political question because if you, if we want to examine how things are changing and how we might respond, we can't say, oh, well, it's all the same because um, there is no up. There's no greater working class power, for example, um, and therefore it must Why, still be the same. It's not about models. having. It's not Why? about having high personal standards, George. It's about making the um, the parameters of what counts as change so high that you would never actually be able to register a meaningful change short of it. Yeah. So you're suggesting that without any kind of agency that's capable of mounting um, a transition then you know this will continue kind of um indefinitely until socialism but there's been many varieties of capitalism short of socialism and it doesn't seem to me impossible that you can have kind of even if it's a process of drift rather than a process of conscious adaptation that you could end up with something which looks significantly different and it seems to me in any you know i mean part of what's driving it is geopolitical right so um, you know, there is kind of a motor of change. It's geopolitical change rather than um, political pressure domestically. That's more primary, but it's not insignificant, right? Who ends up kind of running the world is not a small question. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that criticism if that's what I was saying, but that's not what I was saying, just to to repeat. I think the the, the point about like, okay, how much change does there have to be for us to register it and to us to respond differently? Well, I think that the movement to productivism or com- common good constitutionalism or any of these kind of new emergent ideologies, like they are not sufficiently different to neoliberalism, um, in my opinion, for there to be a fundamentally different sort of response analytically or politically. So, I mean, you know, maybe we're getting stuck in the terminological weeds or whatever, but I just think the the emphasis I would like to, I would want to put is on continuity, not on change, and that's not the same thing as saying that the only thing that that isn't neoliberalism is is socialism. That or it's just all the you know varieties of the same thing. But trying to say, well, actually, we've had a period of what seems like massive change in the last three years. You know, COVID was supposed to have brought about COVID communism or or whatever but actually when the dust settles it doesn't feel at least to me all that all that different kind of politically and maybe i'm just being insular gammony but i think that's you know that i'm not that's I'm why that's why science is necessary um because it doesn't uh you know does doesn't appear on the surface and also it might not feel different because it might not um it might not be better right i mean the, the, you can have a, a post neoliberal settlement which is more reactionary more backwards uh, less democratic than neoliberalism that's in, entirely uh, invisible um so I, I think to set the bar that there would need to be some kind of greater democracy to be non neoliberal um i think is is setting the question wrong now to turn to to turn to the politics of it and how to respond and and this is how we should kind of finish this discussion um so this is kind of the last section may it might be that the answer nevertheless regardless whether it is still neoliberalism or a move to something else is that there um is that you know the building of um new organizations and the demanding of um greater forms of uh you know popular sovereignty it's still the answer, regardless of whether it's neoliberal or something else. And now that might be some that that I think is is like a legitimate conclusion. Um, but I do I do think that if, if um, for example, the state is taking more direct responsibility for um, 
you know, economic outcomes in the way that it wasn't during the neoliberal period, that does open up the possibility for challenge in a way that wasn't there before. And I think that is something that we should be attuned to. But also, I mean, if you have kind of historically, if we're entering a period due to demographics, um, you know, kind of supply chain reshoring, um, industrial policy, um, COVID kind of after effects, what have you, if we're entering a period of labor market tightening, um, and opportunities in kind of as a result of these policies that will give opportunities for labor to flex its muscles more. And I think that's the effect that we're in fact seeing. I mean, I wrote about this, but I think that's the effect that we're seeing in Brexit Britain is um, the kind of the fact that uh, there's so much um, industrial strife by comparison to the last, you know, 40 odd years or 30 years at least. Um, You know, that seems to me then if that happens and you have kind of greater um, political weight to labor and greater social weight to labor, that will be a result of the changes that we're talking about. Right. So in that case, it's, you know, like, I mean, that will be the emer- the emergence of that new kind of collective agency will come about from the changes that we're talking about. So the well, point it, being, right. Well, isn't, it, isn't it the other way around that those changes would come about as a result of the, um, the changing kind of collective agency of labor. I mean, I might, I might be misinterpreting what you're, what you're saying, but it seems that there are, there are, there are demographic. What I'm saying is that there are demographic and economic and political underpinnings of um, labor revolt, right. That can't, that aren't just, um, you know, that you can't just kind of, it's not like pulling a rabbit out of a hat, right. That suddenly you get kind of, um, organized working class politics right it comes out of somewhere and the changes that we're seeing might you know they might lead to that in future maybe yeah i think that's right i mean we can't just be purely subjectivist about this and say that well it's just a matter of will and once that will is there then things will change but that objective factors you know change shuffle the shuffle the deck and and more beyond that so that's not to Mm -hmm. wait for a deus ex machina or demand one or whatever it's just a recognition of how history happens more often than not um and i think one other thing is, is outside of um you know the core countries of the west the geopolitical competition and the kind of post-neoliberal settlement, which involves more reshoring, domestic sourcing, and so on, allows, I think, forces to, or certainly kind of the leaders of of peripheral countries, to play one side against the other. And that's something we're already seeing, to kind of, rather than basically be supplicants to the United States-led order, that you play China against the US, or, you know, the China and US-led blocs against each other. And that, I think, has important implications for the politics in in the majority of the world's countries and the majority of the world's population, in fact, um, in that it in that if politics becomes a, uh, you know, to, to a certain extent configured by um, uh, domestic forces, which uh, seek to ally themselves either to the Chinese bloc or the US bloc, that politics then starts to look different. It leaves a little bit more possibility, um, but it also means that uh, a politics which prioritizes working class autonomy cannot just fall into following one block or the other either. And I think that is an, a, another way in which a kind of post-neoliberal world will see a radically different politics, even if we're only seeing glimpses of it now. Hmm. Okay, um, we will leave that there. Um, uh, Phil... And I think probably George as well are insisting that we never have this conversation again. Um, if you feel the same, let us know. Um, if you have further thoughts, also, um, please do let us know. No, there is. Um, I mean, there are many different ways. Go on. It's an important thing to it is an important thing to talk about, but you can get you can get a bit too lost in this definition or that definition. But I think the, the some of the points you made at the end there all about the political stakes of it yeah it is you know maybe i'm more (laughs) i'm more sympathetic to having it again now now that we've maybe we could just have every episode just about this (laughs) which is the more times you have the conversation the more you get out of it little did you know that the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history was just about this and tracing what comes next anyway uh we hope you've enjoyed this do let us know what you thought um and tell your friends about bungcast if they don't know about it already catch you later (laughs) bye-bye